down here in South Florida. I want to remind everybody who's on Skype this morning to please make sure your microphone is muted. With that, let's begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us and for the whole world, so much so that you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And then he was buried and then you raised him from the dead on the third day so that whoever simply believes in Christ as their savior will never perish but have eternal life. Father, this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of our service. We would ask that you would have the Holy Spirit in addition to guiding us throughout the entire service this morning to particularly concentrate on the meaning of the death of your son for for us and for the whole world. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. At this time, you would stand and we will have a congregation song together. Well, that song this morning pretty much covered the entire 
Christian story from salvation all the way to bliss in heaven. It's amazing how music can do that when it's focused on the word of God. All righty, let's begin. Just a couple of announcements as we get started this morning. Let me back up here because there we go. All right, so today we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of our service. Looking forward to that. Bring into remembrance the Lord's death. Now, next Sunday, February 12th, we won't have service. So again, next Sunday, February 12th, no service. No, it's not because I'm having an early Super Bowl party. I mean, actually, that's not the reason. I know a lot of you people are thinking that, but that's not the reason. Um, also, as a quick reminder, just remember that um, you can give us your prayer requests any, anytime you want. We pray as a, as a group on Thursday evenings after our Bible study. And it's so simple. You just go to our homepage and hit the prayer request, which is in red. You can see where it is in, in relationship to the picture of the lighthouse. And you just click on that and you enter in whatever your prayer request might be. And we'll be sure we'll, we'll, we will look at it and take it with us when we pray on Thursday evening. All right. With that, let's begin our, our message this morning. Um, as always, um, the title of our message comes from the passage that we'll be studying this morning, that we'll be uh, hearing from this morning. And it is the hour has come. The hour has come. Let's now turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 18. John, chapter 12, verse 18. I'll give you a moment to get there. Just a moment, though, because uh, if you guys have the Holy Ribbon, I imagine that it's been on this in this Gospel of John for a while. And you can just pick it up and go there. Or like Lee, if you have a, a, a phone, a smartphone, you can just. How many clicks does it take you to get to a passage? Three. Three. Yeah. See, there you go. One, two, three. Well, with that, I've given everybody enough time to get to John chapter 12, verse 18. So I will read the passage and then we will look at what it means. Verse 18 for this reason also, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Now, to set the stage for this morning, we saw last week that Jesus had, in, in the in the pre, previous passage was when he had his royal entry into Jerusalem. And we saw that it was a tremendous crowd. And part of the reason there was a tremendous crowd was because those who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the dead couldn't stop telling people about it. And that's and that's what we see here in verse 18. For this reason also, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. That's the sign, the greatest sign in the Gospel of John, short of the resurrection of Christ, um, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That was the sign referred to in verse 18. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world." has gone after him. Remember that expression this morning, because we're going to come back to that. The world has gone after him. Verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, Andrew and Philip, saying, The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Again, John 12, 9 to 19 from last week describes the royal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Verse 19, as we read this morning, shows the reaction of the Pharisees when this when this huge crowd had gone out to meet Jesus to welcome him into Jerusalem. And what they said, and I pointed out already about the whole world going after Jesus, that's setting the stage for our passage today. And we'll see a lot of that. That'll be the main focus of our message, actually. But first, there is the matter that um, I want to make sure I cover today. 
And that is the perfect timing, timing of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. In other words, he entered Jerusalem at the perfect time, at the time that had been established by the Father. And that time harkens back to the Old Testament and the t- and how the, the feasts came on particular days and how not only that, but way, way back in the, in the prophet Daniel, he had prophesied that when the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. So we're going to see that. So while not our subject today, let me figure, begin with this. Jesus presented himself as the Messiah on the exact date that the prophet Daniel had foretold. And I just want you to see that we don't have the time this morning to study this subject. I mean, this is a subject that probably requires two or three messages to really dive in and show you how what Daniel prophesied. I'd like you to turn now to Daniel chapter nine, verse twenty five and what Daniel prophesied here and why it is that when Jesus entered Jerusalem um, at on that day that was appointed and they were, and he had a royal welcome and he presented himself as the Messiah. It was exact, the exact date, exact day that Daniel had foretold. But let's just read Daniel 9.25. The perfect timing of the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Six days before the Passover. Daniel 9.25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, remember, Daniel is prophesying in Babylon and he he, he is he has uh, seen how the Lord had kept his people in bondage for the exact number of years. That, that corresponded to, to the, the amount of Sabbaths of the land that they had not, had not honored, 70 years. And now an angel comes to Daniel. Actually, an angel is, is speaking here in verse 25 to Daniel. And now he's telling him what's coming up. What's coming next? What's coming next for the nation of Israel? And so Daniel has a short-term prophecy here, receives one from the angel. When the angel tells him, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. In other words, there will soon be a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed when the Babylonians came in and brought brought the, the Jews into bondage. So it was a ruin at this point in time. But there will be a, a, a king and it will be a king of Persia who will issue a decree to restore and rebuild the city. Now, this is different from a decree that frees them. This is very specific. It's actually in the book of Nehemiah. We can't study it all this morning when he said, now you can go and rebuild Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem. From from the time of that decree until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, the weeks here are weeks of years, okay? So it's basically seven times seven, 62 times seven years, okay? If you do the math on that, I believe it's 483 years, 480, I think it is. That's not our subject today. But Daniel told them the exact day, it turns out, when Jesus would enter Jerusalem and present himself as the Messiah, Messiah the Prince. All right, I wanted you to see that passage um, just to understand that there's more on uh, more than one um, aspect here, the timing of Jesus entering into Jerusalem's perfect. Now, the one I want to spend a little time on this morning um, is the day, the day, the specific day when when this happened, when Jesus had his royal entry into Jerusalem. There is a great book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It's by a gentleman called by the name of Harold Herner. And he, he basically explains the timing of many things, um, including the day of his Jesus crucifixion, including the day of his birth and so forth. It's a great, great book. So he studied this in a great detail. And he one of the things that he talks about is the exact day when Jesus entered Jerusalem 
what we saw last week. And let me tell you how what he says. Okay, he says that Jesus entered Jerusalem on the tenth day of Nisan. Now Nisan, I think I may have spelled that wrong, but Nisan is a month in the in the Hebrew calendar, and it's a and it's a very important month. For one for one thing, it was the it was the time that the actual day, the tenth of Nisan, was when Joshua Joshua brought the, the, the Jews and crossed the Jordan River into Canaan, for example. That was one. So this day is a really important day in the Jewish calendar, the 10th of Nisan. So when Herna calculated, based on other information that's in the Gospels, exactly when Jesus entered Jerusalem, and by his reckoning, it was a Monday Okay, because of the year, A.D. 33, it turns out that on, in A.D. 33, the 10th of Nisan was on a Monday. Okay, the Monday and the date was March 30th. So, so, but the key I want you to understand here is that he entered Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan. We're going to see why that is. It's highly significant. The reason is, is because the 10th day of Nisan was the day that the lamb was selected for the Passover. Remember now, the Jews have come from all over to celebrate the Passover. And there was a very prescribed means in which what would happen which day. And on the 10th of Nisan, I'm going to show you this in just a minute in the book of Exodus, was the day when when the Lord had had instructed the Hebrews to select the lamb. Remember, it had to be an unblemished lamb. Select it. Not to kill it yet, but to select it in, in anticipation of the, of the Passover meal. So with that, I'd like you to turn to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 12, book of Exodus, chapter 12, to see the Lord's instructions concerning the selection of the lamb for the Passover meal. Exodus, chapter 12, verse 1. Keeping in mind that the 10th of Nisan was when the Lord entered Jerusalem. Nisan is the first day, first month in the Jewish calendar. Okay, so let's see what the Lord told Moses and Aaron when when he instructed them as to how they should celebrate the Passover. Exodus 12, starting in verse one. Now, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. That's Nisan. Then he tells them in verse three, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th of this month, they are to take each one, each family to take a lamb for themselves. They are select the lamb for the Passover supper on the 10th day of Nisan, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. So, again, this is significant. The the day that Jesus entered the, the Jerusalem. Was the, was the 10th of Nisan, and that was the exact day when the Lord had, had instructed Moses and Aaron to make sure that the, the Jewish Hebrew families would select a lamb for themselves. So what, when Jesus enters Jerusalem then, he's presenting himself as the Passover lamb. I'll say the Passover lamb, because, because all that was what, was what was symbolized in the Passover meal was actually the lamb that was to come and how John had talked in chapter one of this gospel John the Baptist he says behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world well the lamb of God presented himself to the nation of Israel on the 10th of Nisan and that was the day that the Lord had specified for each family to select a lamb for themselves well it turns out that God the father selected the lamb for the whole human family so not only that, but he's also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that so that the, the Lamb that was that was slain, all right, in the in the Passover ritual represented the fact that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, would die to take away the sin of the world. So in addition to Jesus being the Messiah who presents himself on this day when he when he enters Jerusalem, he's also presenting himself as the Passover lamb, as well as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. We, as, as believers and members of the body of Christ, of course, look back on the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul makes reference to this in 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. A little leaven, remember, remember, spoils the entire loaf of bread. In, in context, this was talking about a man who was blatantly violating the, the standards. He was basically having sex with his father's wife. Okay, That person had to be removed from the assembly, lest that leaven, okay, meaning that, that somebody who had, had uh, done this, if they hadn't been removed then that was likely to spread. People would say, oh, so I guess that the grace of God means that we can do things like that, and there's no consequences. Okay, so so that's the context here. In any event, notice, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. We are all righteous in God's eyes because we believe in Jesus Christ, and and, and God the Father credits the faith that we have in Christ and his blood as righteousness for us, credit to our account, as it were. But then he says this, for Christ, our Passover. Now, that's interesting because, of course, the Corinthians were not Jewish. There were some, but they were primarily a Gentile congregation, a Gentile church, just as we this morning are primarily Gentiles. Okay, so what this is saying is that what began as a feast for the Jews only is now for everybody, for every believer in Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Christ is now our Passover. He's now, why? Because he's the Lamb of God for us. He has been sacrificed for us. For Christ, our Passover now also has been sacrificed. That's what we're going to bring to remembrance this morning when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Okay, so that's the perfect timing of when the Lord Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem. So with that in mind now, let's go back to our passage today. Go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 20. Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 20. In our passage this morning, Jesus is also going to talk about timing. It's timing that he had spoken of from the beginning of his public ministry, right? there was there was a time that was to come. Well, it turns out that th- this morning we are going to see when that time arrived. Okay, let's see it. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Now, now this is interesting because the Passover feast was a Jewish feast. But here we have Greeks. Those weren't Jewish people. Those were Gentiles. And yet they're also going up to worship at the feast. We're going to see who these people were and what they what how they participated and could not participate and what was going to happen at the Passover. In any event, there were some Greeks, Gentiles, among those who were going up to worship at the feast of Passover in Jerusalem. Twenty one. These then came to Philip. Philip, of course, is one of the disciples, one of the twelve. These then came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. We saw that before. As a matter of fact, not only was Philip from Bethsaida of Galilee, but so was Andrew and so was Peter. Okay, It was a, it was a portion. It was part of Israel, of, of Israel, of Galilee, but it was in the, in, the, in the extreme right east side, northeast side of Galilee. Okay, So in other words, it was right next door to the Gentiles. And as a matter of fact, um, Andrew and Philip, as we're going to see in a moment, they, they were together, um, both in all in all likelihood spoke Greek, which may be one of the reasons why the Greeks went to them. We don't know. But in any event, verse 21, these, these Greeks who were among the pilgrims going to worship in Jerusalem came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And they began to ask him, saying, Sir, 
We wish to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We want to be with him. We want to learn from him. Philip came and told Andrew. I guess Philip didn't feel comfortable approaching Jesus alone. All right. In any event, he came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Told them what? That there were some Greeks who were coming along with the pilgrims to worship and they wanted to see him. Verse 23. Jesus answered them, Philip and Andrew. So they go to him. They tell him about the Greeks and he answers them. Now, what does he say? Does he say they can't come? Does he say bring them here? No, he doesn't talk about it at all, right? What does he what does he say? Notice what he says. The hour has come. The hour is finally here. The hour that Jesus has been talking about from the very beginning of his public ministry, now is here. Now I want you to just stop for a minute and think about what we have here. We have we have Greeks coming and asking to see Jesus. We have Jesus not responding to their request at all, yet saying this tremendous thing. That's something that that we've been watching and we've seen this as we've studied the Gospel of John, him talking about his hour. But he always said that it had not come. (laughs) We're going to go back in a moment to the John chapter two. So this is a this is a very significant moment. The hour has come. Well, what what triggered that? What was the catalyst for him saying that? It's right here. What happened right before he said it? You can talk in church. He comes then to Jerusalem. Well, but in our passage this morning, what happens right before? All right, I know it's Sunday. I know it's raining out. Glad you guys are all here. The, Je- the, the Greeks, the Gentiles came and said, we wish to see Jesus. That's what he heard that 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 triggered him saying the hour has come. So we're going to so we have to ask ourselves this morning, why was it that? Why was it the, the, the these Gentiles coming and asking to see Jesus that led to Jesus saying the hour has come? All right. Verse 23. Let's finish out this verse. Jesus answered Philip and Andrew saying the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, so so we're gonna we're gonna look at the, the fact that Jesus is talking about himself being glorified, beginning with this hour. So we're gonna see what he meant by that, what John's gospel means by how is it that the Lord is glorified, the Son of Man is glorified. Now these Greeks, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Again, it's interesting that you have Gentiles coming to Jerusalem to participate in some manner of fashion in the, in the, in the Passover feast. Who were they? Well, these Greeks were what was called God-fearing Gentiles. God-fearing Gentiles. The centurion that had come to Jesus and said, um, I want you to heal my servant. But don't I don't even want you to come because um, I'm not worthy of that. Right. But this this there was I don't know if it's the same one, but there's a centurion who actually built a synagogue for the Jews, a Roman centurion, a Gentile. And yet they they recognized that the Jewish people were the people of the living God. That's that's pretty significant. So they were God fearing Gentiles. They weren't Greek speaking Jews. All right. There's some some people want to say that that's the case. Not at all. They were Greek. They were Gentiles. They were God fearing Gentiles. They believed in the God of Israel. They joined the Jews during the feasts to worship. They sort of tagged along. Okay, very much an image, by the way, that Zechariah, the prophet, used in terms of how the Gentiles would behave when the king came to set up the kingdom. They'd be tugging at, at the at the skirts of the Jewish people to come along. That's what these Gentiles were doing. They were coming along to join the Jews during the Feast of Passover, and that's what they would do. However, they were not Jews. They were not even what was called proselytes. In other words, you could, as a Gentile, you could convert to Judaism, okay? It's true today, okay? But there's a whole process, set of rituals that you have to perform in order for you to be recognized as a, as a, as a, not of course as a, as a Hebrew according to the race, but according to your religion. They hadn't done that. 
Uh, because of that, they were not allowed to even enter the temple. Okay, They were not allowed, certainly, to eat the Passover meal. But they were allowed to come. As a matter of fact, um, there is when when the, when you look at how the temple was constructed at that time. Okay, you have you have the inner temple. Okay, and then you have the holy of holies, which the high priest could only enter once a year. Okay, but then outside of the temple proper, there was this thing called the court of the Gentiles, and that's as close as they could get. Okay, there was a wall of partition between the Gentiles and the Jews. But that meant that there were Gentiles coming, right, to get as close to the temple as they could, God-fearing Gentiles. They wanted to speak with Jesus. This was a bold thing for them to do. Now, remember, we are still in a situation where the chief priests and the Pharisees were forbidding anybody to even mention that Jesus could be the Christ. They were now, they had now declared that they were going to put him to death. Throughout, we've seen tremendous fear from Jewish people. They didn't want to rock the boat. But guess what? The raising of Lazarus from the dead changed it. People said, we don't care what the, elder, what, the, what the elders and the chief priests and the Pharisees say. We recognize oh, this man is a miracle worker. Many indeed considered him to be the, the king, the Messiah at this point in time. Nevertheless, it was a pretty bold thing for a Gentile to come up and ask to speak with this Jesus. Well, they did that. They approached his disciples to make the request. Andrew and Philip came from Bethsaida, remember, and probably spoke Greek, which was why they probably went to them. But in verse 23, Jesus doesn't grant their request, nor does he say no. He doesn't, he doesn't address it at all directly. In other words, the request for them to talk to him. He doesn't do that. Well, what happened? Well, their desire to see him, the Gentiles desiring to see Jesus, signaled to him that his hour had come. Very interesting. One might think that it would have been some kind of, well, one might think that it would have been the royal entry into Jerusalem, right? That makes sense that here you have the tremendous crowds of Jews and they're bringing him, welcoming in, honoring him as their king. He's presenting himself as the king in the limb of God. But it wasn't then. When, when did he realize that his hour had come? When Gentiles, not Jews, had come and said, we desire to see Jesus. That's what signaled to Jesus that his hour had finally arrived. Now, up, up until now, his hour had not yet come. John had recorded this early in the gospel, several times. In fact, all the way back in the gospel of John chapter 2. I'd like you to turn there now. Please go to John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We are now going back to the very start of Jesus' public ministry. He started his ministry in Galilee. Okay, it was at a wedding feast. Several of his disciples, including Andrew and Philip, as well as Peter and Nathaniel, had already encountered Jesus, had already expressed their faith in him, and that they knew that he was the Messiah and that he was the king of Israel. Okay. Now he's coming to a wedding in Cana. Look at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, his mother, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. So in chapter two, his hour had not yet come. Please look at John chapter eight, verse 20. You know, beginning, well, beginning all the way back in John chapter 2, Jesus is performing miracles and people are, are excited and, and say, this is a miracle worker. And so even then, there are the, the rumblings of the, the chief priests, the Pharisees, um, worrying about him, being, being negative towards him all the way back then. That continues. I mean, we see, we saw in chapter five, after he had performed a healing, 
And uh, the man who had been crippled for a long time, he told him to get up and walk. And the Pharisees reacted very negatively toward that. In fact, at that point in time, they wanted to kill him in the sense that they, they thought he had blasphemed by declaring himself God's son. So this has been going on for a long time. As For another example, here we have John chapter 8, verse 20. Let's just see what happened and what was said here. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him. They wanted to, but they didn't. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. So there was an hour when they would be able to seize him, because they flipped this around. There would be, would be an hour that would come when the leaders would be able to seize him. But not only that, they would be able to condemn him. But not only that, they would be able to turn him over to the Romans. Not only that, that they would convince the Romans to have him crucified. But in chapter 8, that hour had not yet come. Jesus spoke of his hour in another way when he talked about the fact that there were 12 hours in the day. Remember that? Even when they were coming back to um, from Bethlehem beyond the Jordan, I mean, Beth, Beth, Bethany beyond the Jordan to Bethany where Lazarus, Martha and Mary lived. Jesus said they didn't want him to go because they're like, they just tried to stone you, Lord. He says, relax. What did he say? There are 12 hours in the day. In other words, my hour has not yet come. But he said, when the 12 hours are over, then night would come. Then the darkness would come. So when Jesus said, my hour has come, the hour for the Son of Man has come to be glorified. That was that was the hour that he's been talking about ever since chapter 2. The hour that John refers to in, cha- in chapter 8 and other places as well. The hour has come now. When the Greeks approached Jesus for the Son of Man, that's the title, remember, for the humanity of Jesus, for the fact that he's the Messiah. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, but not glorified in the manner that the Jews expected. They they thought he was the great king. They thought he was the Messiah that would deliver the, the Jew. He thought they probably at this moment when they heard that still thought about it in terms of, okay, so now he is going to establish himself as the king, defeat the, push the Romans out of Israel and so forth. But that's not at all what Jesus meant when he talked about his glory. So what does the glorification of Jesus mean to Jesus? And, and as we see, particularly how John and his gospel, gospel portrays it. This is what he meant by the glorification of Jesus. It begins not at the, you might think, well, his glorification began at, the, at his royal entry into Jerusalem. No. You might even think his glorification began, Jesus is now. Glorification of Jesus began when he raised Lazarus from the dead. No, that wasn't it either. That glorified the Father. Okay, but we're talking about the glorification of Jesus as the Son of Man. Because remember, in the Gospel of John, every time he committed a miracle, he credited his Father. My father has done this. My father is glorified. So, But we're talking about Jesus as the son of man being glorified. In John's gospel, the glorified glorification of Jesus, the son of man, begins with his death on the cross. Now that's, to human thinking, that is a contradiction, isn't it? A man is glorified by being condemned to death as a criminal and dying. Hmm. I don't, you know, the world would look at that and 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 scorn anyone who would say that. Think about it today. Imagine if somebody was given the death penalty, and when they were about to administer it, they would say, "This person is being glorified right now." That is not a human way to look at it at all. But it is God's way, and it is Jesus' way. And the hour, the glorification of Jesus, the Son of God, Son of Man in this case as well, begins with his death on the cross. But notice I said begins. In other words, this hour continues. Okay, The hour is not, as we consider it, one hour of the day, you know, one out of 24 hours. After all, even the even the crucifixion of Christ took six hours. So get out of your mind the the idea that this was literally an hour. This was a period of time that had been specified. It begins 
with the death of Christ on the cross. But it extends from there. Glorification of the Son of Man. This is in his humanity now. Jesus' resurrection, of course, glorifies him as well as the Father. His ascension. And his, and finally, his session, when he was seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay, that was the maximum glorification of the Son of Man, the humanity of Jesus Christ. So when he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, it begins with the death of Christ on the cross. It continues with his resurrection, ascension, and session. All of that is what he meant. In total, the entire package was what he meant by the Son of Man being glorified. Well, let's step back again and think, wait a minute, he said this in response to these Gentiles coming to him. So how did the Greeks' desire to approach Jesus signal that his hour had come to be glorified, that his hour had come to, to, to die on the cross and then to be raised from the dead and ascend and be seated at the right hand of the Father? Well, remember verse 19 once again of the Gospel of John. You're in the Gospel of John now, right? Is that we all are? I didn't bring you somewhere else. I think you were. Remember in verse 19, what did the Pharisees say when they saw the crowds coming and welcoming into Jerusalem? They said, look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. Now, when they said that, what they really meant was the world of Jews, uh, who, would, it would, because of the Passover, had come from long distances in some case. So, as far as the, you know, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, you know, if they're coming from all these different parts of the Roman Empire, you know, to their way of thinking, that's the world, you know. But it's a, it's an exaggeration. It's hyperbole, right? The whole the whole world. Who said the whole world is watching? Was that in 1968? When they were, I think it was, I'm going to my history now, but I think it was 1968 when they were protesting the Democratic Convention here. Um, I think it was in Chicago. Yeah, it was. Right. There were TV cameras and they were, they were chanting, the whole world is watching. Well, that's a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. Just like here. They thought anyway, it was an exaggeration. But in fact, the Pharisees here said a lot more than they realized they were saying. Just like Caiaphas. Remember, we've seen that he said a lot more. It is better for one man to die than the whole nation. Right? That that they that we saw that that he was what he was doing was identifying the fact that Jesus would be the substitute on the cross, but for all people. The world has gone after him. Okay, let me ask the question one more time. How did the desire of these Greeks to see Jesus signal to him that his hour had come? Well, we're going to go back to chapter 10 of the Gospel of John now. I want you to remember something from chapter 10. More than remember it, we'll read it. This is the the chapter when Jesus says that he's the good shepherd. Let's revisit what he said, starting in verse 11 of the Gospel of John, verse 11. The world has gone after him. My hour has come. The Greeks desire to approach Jesus. It signaled to him that his hour had come to be glorified. Why? Look at John chapter 10, starting in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, that, of course, was a somewhat veiled reference to his death on the cross. Certainly, he's saying it as a parable. And it's doubtful that anybody he spoke those words to that day recognized that he was talking about himself dying on the cross. Very doubtful. Nevertheless, he was. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who was not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he's not concerned about the sheep. But I, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Up to this point, everybody assumed that what he meant by the sheep was the nation of Israel. 
not a doubt. I'll show you in a minute why that would be. Okay, we're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew in a minute. I lay down my life for the sheep. But notice what he says in verse 16. I have other sheep. Wait a minute. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is dying on the cross. Okay. He lays down his life. Who does he lay it down for? The sheep. Verse 16. I have other sheep. Notice he didn't say, I also have goats. Right? I have other sheep. Okay. They're not of this fold. We'll see what that means. I must bring them also, and they also will hear my voice, and they will become, with this fold that I'm talking to today, the Jews, one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I may I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down in my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again, and this commandment I received from my Father. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. This fold was Israel. In the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus said that he was sent only to the nation of Israel. As an example of that now, hold your place in the Gospel of John, but let's go to Matthew 15, verse 24. This is what Jesus had to say in the Gospel of Matthew about who his sheep were, interestingly enough. Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. What did he say at this time? Matthew 15, 24. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Of the house. So as far as, as, far as the people were concerned here, as far as what he was trying to say at this point in time, he was equating sheep with the house of Israel. Okay, if that's true, then who are the other sheep who are not of this fold? Well, they're not of the house of Israel. Therefore, the other sheep who are not of this fold must refer to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. Now, I hope you're beginning to see why it is that the Greeks coming to Jesus was so significant. Why? Because you have the Gentiles now coming to Jesus at the very moment. The leadership of Israel is rejecting him and is condemning him and so forth, freaking out that so many people are following him. When these Greeks asked to see Jesus, Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew again that he was the Lamb of God, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The whole world is going out after him. They knew they said far more than they realized. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The world includes Gentiles as well as Jews. This is a tremendous turning point in the ministry of Jesus. When the Greeks come to him and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified to die on the cross, leading to his resurrection and and ascension and session. That hour has come. Tremendous turning point in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like you to turn now to the gospel. um, Yes, the gospel of John chapter 4. Let me get this up here. John chapter 4, verse 40. Here, Jesus is... This is when he approached the woman at the well, or he, or she approached him, and she and he declared to her that I am the Messiah. And then she ran back to the city of Sychar, where she came from, told everybody about Jesus, and then they asked. Then Jesus saw that the Samaritans were coming to him. The Samaritans were half Jewish and half Gentile. I mean, not everyone had that 50-50, but basically, they were, as they might have called it, a mixed breed, okay? So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, verse 40, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word. This is fascinating, by the way. It's not our subject. But remember how most of the Jews who, quote, believed in him, believed in him because of his miracles, But these Samaritans, half Jewish, half Gentile, why did they believe in him? Because of his word. word. And that's the best thing. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's how we believe in him, right? We've never seen his miracles. 
but we hear the word of God and we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. In any event, verse 42, they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves. And notice what he said, what they said. And know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. We see it here as well. So now back in chapter 12, this group of Gentiles that was to see him represents the world. Now you can see why his hour had come. They represent the world who is seeking salvation from Jesus. At the very moment, I want you to think about this. At the very moment, the very moment, we've just seen the Pharisees say, we're in trouble. The whole world is going after him. At that very moment, when the chief priests and Pharisees plan to kill him, the Gentiles want to be with him. That's why his hour had come. He recognized what was happening. Out with the old, in with the new. Matthew records a parable that Jesus spoke. And it's interesting because one of the um, benefits of, of studying a passage that is in all four Gospels is that now you have a time marker and you can see other things in the Gospel and how they line up with things in the Gospel of John. And so I never realized this till I did this study, but Matthew records a parable and, it, and it's a parable that Jesus spoke either the same day, the same day that the Gentiles approached Jesus or the following day. In any event, let's look at it right now. Please look now to Matthew 21, Matthew 21, verse 33, Matthew 21, verse 33. Matthew 21, 33. Again, Jesus probably saying this parable the very same day that the Greeks came to see him and he said, my hour has come. The Greeks representing the world coming to Jesus for salvation. Verse 33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. By the way, that's a quotation from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Landowner planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers. So we have the landowner plants the vineyard, rents out the vineyard to the wine growers, and then he went on a journey. Verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the, to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And then again, the landowner sent another group of slaves larger than the first. And they did the same thing to them. They beat one, killed another and stoned a third. Well, let's set up the parable. Okay, the, who are these who are these? characters in this parable. Well, the landowner in the parable is God the Father. God the Father planted a vineyard and, and put a wall around it, dug a wine press and built a tower. Okay? That's God the Father. Okay? Then we have what? Then we have the vine growers. Well, the vine growers are the leaders of Israel. They The, the Lord had given them and told them, you are the shepherds. You are to oversee in my place. Of course, the vineyard itself is Israel. Okay, it is Israel. Representatively. So we have the, the landowner is God the Father. The vine growers are the leaders of Israel. Who are the slaves? Who are the slaves that the vine growers beat and killed and stoned? Well, the slaves of the Old Testament prophets, including John the Baptist, by the way. So so when we when we see the landowner. Um, sending his slaves, those are the prophets, to the vine growers, the, the, the leadership of Israel. Many, most of the prophets went to the leaders, um, either in Judah in the south or Israel in the north. What did they do? Well, they rejected them all. They, they beat one, they, they uh, oops, killed another and stoned a third. And he sent another group and they did the same thing. Verse 37. Afterward, I remember the, the last prophet um, 
worked about 400 years before Jesus came. Okay, so afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, now think now about the chief priests and the Pharisees that we've seen, right? Rejecting Jesus, put it, wanting to put him to death and so forth. When the vine growers saw the son, they, who do you think the son is? Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God. When the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. This is the heir to the kingdom. Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Let us kill him, the son, and seize his inheritance. This is, this is exactly what we just saw, that the chief priests and the Pharisees want to kill him. They want to seize his inheritance. They took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. The son, of course, represents the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God. He's the Messiah. Now, what's the Messiah? The chosen heir of David, right? Heir to the kingdom, heir to the throne of David. They realized if they killed him, then they could remain in charge. They wanted to remain in power. So they killed the son of God, the son of, and it's interesting, they killed him outside the walls of Jerusalem. They took him out of the vineyard and they killed him. That's what Jesus is talking about in this parable. Verse 40, then when the land, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said to him, he will bring these wretches to a wretched end. They were condemning themselves, by the way. He's talking here to the Pharisees. And they will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you ever read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the cornerstone, Psalm 118. This came about from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. Did you ever read that one? Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone, that's Jesus, the cornerstone, will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize, seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So Israel after the flesh, right? Not, not true Israel, believers, but fleshly Israel, was about to be put aside, out with the old and with the new. The kingdom that they had been waiting for was to be lost to these people forever. Now, we know in the future, there'll be a remnant of Israel, the Bible talks about, a remnant, regenerate Israel, believing Israel. We'll be back again, and that that is who will receive the kingdom ultimately. Ultimately, that hasn't happened yet. But in the meantime... In the meantime, here's where we come in. Here's where the Greeks come in. The grace of God will now go out to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what what the, the parable is speaking. And that is exactly what we've seen that with John, when he talks about the sheep that are from another fold, it's all pointing to the fact that the grace of God would now be extended to the Gentiles and the Lord would break down that wall of partition. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the world. Jesus is the light that enlightens every man. And so when we come back in a, in a, in a little while, when we are in John 12, 32, he's going to say, if I am lifted up from the earth, that's the manner in which he would be killed. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. That is, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death I wish he was to die. Now, when we come back in two weeks, we're going to resume our passage in chapter 12, verse 24. When we do, we're going to learn a new principle. Well, new for some of us. Or at least we're going to, we're going to bring it to remembrance. I know this is a popular passage, but there's a principle behind what he's going to talk about when he talks about the grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies. And, and by the way, there will be a lesson, not only for his disciples that he was teaching at the time, but for us as well. We'll see that next week. 
Okay, so let us now prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Thank you.